Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Justin. Hey, Keith. How's it going? Not too bad. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. Thank you. Very good on this miserable Sunday, but, you know, otherwise. Uh, tell me about your... Uh, what, were you, what, were you, what did you say you planned to do this morning? Because you said you were available after... 11 yeah so on sundays we have this cool thing we do um we do like a podcast club um which uh um was i, I think it was created by i think uh, david and stephen flynn the happy pair created it i live in greystones um and and the guys are friends of mine and we've grown into about 60 people um so every sunday for Probably, I think, since lockdown in March, um, we get uh, together and whether that's in person when we can or right now it's on, it's on Zoom. Somebody picks a podcast and everybody else listens to it. And we've got, we've got a huge kind of diverse audience um, or our listeners um, to, br- to bring something to the table. So we all do the, the decent thing and listen to whatever somebody suggests Um and like we've listened to some incredible things. Like I think two weeks ago we were listening to the reality of how long it takes for nuclear waste to um, be uh, destroyed, and and how they've built bunkers to do this over a hundred thousand years. And then the next week it could be something completely kind of sublime and simple or hilarious. So it's it's a great mix. So we do that. We get together half six every Sunday morning. Um, whoever whoever's up for it, and uh, and then we go swimming. Wow. So did you do that this morning? Yeah. Didn't go swimming, though, because she's a bit wild out there. Um, but we still go down to the beach, uh, have some tea and look at the waves. So I was down there with my wife. And, uh, you know, even in the ferociousness of the weather, being outside is just still wonderful. So still use it as an excuse to get out, have a look at Mother Nature, have a bit of a walk, get wet in the rain like the sea and uh, still a nice way to start today it's the keith walsh podcast it's essential like your breakfast it will get you up and going there's the things you didn't know yeah it's the keith walsh podcast it's the keith walsh podcast give you energy like buck fast and if your head's in a pickle or you're looking for a giggle it's the keith walsh podcast hey what's up I don't know why it did that. It's silly. It is the Keith Walsh Podcast. You're very welcome. It's Monday evening. And uh, I have another wonderful chat for you, which I'll tell you about in just a moment or several moments. I have to give a shout out to um, another podcaster, Linda with a Y. Her name is Linda with a Y, but the podcast is Linda with a Y, like the word Y, W-H-Y. Um and you'll find it uh, wherever you get your podcast. So nice one, Linda. Thank you very much. I think she listens to this and she wants a shout out for her podcast. We got to support each other. Thank you very much, Linda with a Y. And I presume 
she asks questions of people I think we've been doing this thing 100 days of no booze and Linda's been doing it with us and I think she said at the end of it the, the, the goal is to do the 100 days and then I'm going to chat to her on her podcast so that should be nice so uh, yeah, looking forward to that, Linda. Um, and yeah, I just want to see if there's anybody else. I put up a thing on Instagram to see if anybody wants to shout out. And that's the only one I can do. Yeah, thank you. Um, I did wake up this morning full of vim and vigor and uh, not really anger, but uh, just I just got something to my head about the leaving cert. I know I keep banging on about the leaving cert, but my daughter's doing the leaving cert this year, so I'm uh, I'm very focused on that. I'm very aware of what's going on. And, and this week they're supposed to be announcing the plans. The schools are talking about, well, the gov- somebody, I don't even know who's talking about it at the moment. There's like, they're leaking stuff to the press and you're reading in the paper, oh, your yeah, schools could be back after, you know, next week. But it's just totally freaking everybody out, you know. Not necessarily me, but um, but the students. And I wrote this this morning when I woke up. I just had it in my head and I said, look, if I just write it down, it'll be done then. And, I've, and then I sent it to people who didn't do anything with it, but that's okay. Uh, third level institutions now need to... What did I call it? That's a good start, anyway. Uh, now need to um, get their shit together, basically. It shouldn't be the job of second level schools to fill the place of third level institutions. Yes, second level should prepare you for life. And if the next part of your life involves a third level education, you should be ready, prepared, poised to take on that challenge. But filling the increasing number of third level places should not be the priority of second level principals and teachers. As parents, we need to take a more active role in our children's education and we need to be asking questions about its structure and its goals and ultimately how it benefits our children in the long run. Is a points race the answer to a happy, well-rounded young adult? How does second level prepare our young folk for life? What does a brilliant Leaving Cert actually get you? What does success mean to these children? For me, as a father, success is not a piece of paper with enough points to allow you to go on to further education. Kids getting stressed out about a sit-down exam that will decide their future is not success. Getting to the top of the ladder with maximum points only to find yourself back at the bottom of the ladder of success when you start your third level course. This does not seem seem like a sound gauge for success. The pandemic has highlighted one thing for me as the father of a sixth year student. Parts of our education system are broken, not fit for purpose, and not designed to be helpful to young adults trying to figure it all out. Life is not about getting into third level. That can be a part of life, sure. Life is about friendship, about mental health awareness, about physical health awareness, about compassion, about humanity, about looking after each other and the planet, about healthy work environments, about dealing with anxiety and stress in an honest and open way, in a world where people should feel free to be vulnerable enough to tell the truth about healthy relationships, about equality, about consent, about respecting others and their view and way of life, about education, education, reading books on subjects that interest you and furthering your study on subjects that interest you. In this school system, we have narrowed it all down to a points race. And what is this points race when you break it down and strip it all away? The points race 
just makes second level principals and teachers responsible for filling the places of third level institutions. Why? Why is this? You alright, Bob? I'm just recording the podcast. Oh. I, I'll talk to you in a second. My daughter's teachers have been doing an excellent job during this current lockdown. She's been in a room attending classes and learning. Happy and learning. For me, this is golden. This is the goal. A happy student. Well done, holy family teachers. Job done. But for some reason, they, we people are obsessed with this state exam called the Leaving Cert, which is nothing more than a glorified college entrance exam. An exam that decides who goes to what course and what college. This is how we're measuring success. Why can't the principals and boards of management simply tell the third level institutions, sorry lads, you're going to have to find another system to help fill your courses. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Our priority right now is the health, happiness and education of the boys and girls in our care. Good luck. We're still talking about state exams, leaving cert, mocks. With the Leaving Cert cycle that haven't experienced a state exam style test since the Junior Cert, that's three years ago. And most of them. For most of them, sorry. And yet some schools seem happy to suddenly land them with the mocks and the Leaving Cert with about 40 days left in the school year. There's nothing wrong with stress and anxiety. But this would be off the scale of stress and anxiety. To subject anyone to sit-down exams under these conditions would not be fair and would definitely not give a true reflection of how good they are at English. Colleges and universities are getting off scot-free as far as I can see. We need to be asking them what they intend to do, how they intend to help figure out how to fill the college places without a leaving cert. Interviews? An open book exam? Ask the students to write a letter to the college explaining why they would like to attend this course? Put the onus back on the universities and colleges. Stop putting all of the pressure of filling college places on the students, teachers and principals of secondary schools. As far as I can see, it is their job to ensure the safety, happiness and education of our teenagers and not doing the job of filling spaces in third level courses. We need to think outside the box. Think about what education actually means. We need to do better. That's that. Anyway. Very happy for you to let me know what you think about that. And uh, you can get in touch with the podcast. It's keithwatchpod at gmail.com. Listen, you know, maybe you don't care. Maybe your kids aren't that age. Maybe you don't have kids. Maybe your kids are older and you've been through it and you've seen it. And, and it's it, it totally is. It's all relative because I'm in the middle of it now and I'm trying to uh, stick up for my daughter and I want to make sure that, you know, the students get fair crack of the whip or they get they at least get heard you know I wonder sometimes are they are they really considering the pupils and then of course I hear that some pupils want to sit a sit down exam so you know look I talk to my daughter she tells me stuff and I try and pass that on in my words and that's that's what we're doing so anyway hopefully it'll all work out for the best and uh, that was me this morning that's what I woke up to right let's crack on with the uh, podcast it is uh, today with a young man, and I say young man because, well, he's younger than me, so why wouldn't I say young man? Justin is his name. I wonder would you have come across him? 
Anyway, you can follow him on Instagram. Uh, he is Justin Caffrey, public figure, it says here on Instagram. Trauma Explorer, watching the breath, breathing. Um, free masterclass on stress and stress relief there on his Instagram. Yeah, so he's like a coach and uh, he's into cold water swimming, meditation, um, getting up early, really early and uh, kind of hang, hanging out with the, the happy pair and he's vegan as well fair play to you justin yesterday was a tough day emotionally mentally and spiritually today i was offered the chance to start again i took it yeah that's good actually it's the one thing i think is, is you know even if you're having a shit day if you can get up and do do a bit of a ritual like a bit of med or a bit of walking or as he does cold swimming that's all good i had a really good chat with justin and uh he got in touch with me and, you know, as they say these days, reached out and and we uh, we had a bit of back and forth and his story really piqued my interest. Um, and I thought people who listen to this pod could learn something from him. Um, I, you know, it's not to say his story is everyone's story because his life is slightly different to, well, to mine and uh, to maybe to, to what most people are listening to in that he was quite a high flyer. Um, but you know, sort of dropped all that and moved away from all that to change his life and, and do something different. Um, I was really honoured uh, that he decided to share the story of the short life and unfortunate death of his son. I just thought that was, I mean, it, it's always a brave thing to do. Um, his son, Joshua. So thank you very much, Justin, for sharing that. And also, we got into a story about uh, that he said he doesn't really talk about. A story about uh, an incident in Malta where he, where the cops tried to stitch him up and put him in jail and get him sent down, and uh, he managed to get out of it. But so for very interesting, interesting stories, interesting life. Um, and he did message me afterwards, and he forgot to tell me about. Uh, is intermittent fasting which i'm doing as well i don't eat till five o'clock every day and then i've got a window of five hours in which to eat uh, and he does something similar he does the same he just does it different times so he doesn't eat um he starts eating at 11 o'clock so he would eat 11 to 5 or whatever that is um and he's been doing it for a year and a half or something so uh and he, he did I, I maybe i'll have to get him back on to have a chat but he was telling me he, he he learned the method or he started doing it when he was over in japan i think with some monks i don't know <laughs> sounds like a pretty cool story and uh, i'm a little bit jealous of that anyway thank you very much for joining me for a chat it is episode 68 of the keith walsh podcast with justin caffrey what's the crack with getting up at half six is that normal for you yeah yeah, it's kind of sad at this point, but um, you know, I, I I go to bed at like half nine, so I'm the I'm the butt of jokes of my thirteen year old, um, because I can't stay up much longer. But I'm I'm a super early riser, so five a.m. That's it. I'm up. I'm awake. I'm 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 ready for my day. And I always find that the morning time is is my time. It's a great opportunity to kind of you know get into myself and put the skin on and feel the body and get ready for the day and nobody's emailing me or interrupting me. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, 
a nice meditation practice and it's it's always been the time for me to do it. I know if I try and do stuff for myself later on during the day, the best laid intentions, it's always going to get lost. So if I just go straight in in the morning, no distractions, literally just move from the bed to the floor and start there. And then, and then the day begins. And I love the morning times. I've got to the point now where I refuse to do any work or talk to anybody till 1030. That's like my, where my day starts. So from five to 1030, it's just, you know, my time and then I'll go and swim and then I'll wander around and find somebody who looks lost and have a coffee with them. You know, any, any poor unfortunate who bumps into me is going to get stuck having a chat, but it's lovely just kind of chewing the breeze. And, 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 you know, even in these horrible times when we can only move five kilometers, finding somebody else who's out walking and have a chat about nothing is fantastic. And has it always been like this, Justin? Have you always been an early riser, early to bed, meditating kind of guy? Talk, talk, oh, talking to strangers on the beach, yeah, enjoying the enjoying the wild weather on a Sunday morning at half six. Oh, has it always been like this, Justin? I'd love to say it's always been like that, Keith. The reality was I was previously, I think when I when I went into therapy, my psychiatrist um, in, in my third session said to me that, you know, you are um, a borderline functioning psychopath. Um so there's a bit of a way between that comment and and now. So there's there's been a journey, and and for me, early mornings back in the days would have been, you know, three o'clock in the morning, probably still drinking, and not uh, certainly not thinking about getting up to meditate or uh, do anything positive. So no. <laughs> so we we go back before therapy. So what so what age are you now? Do you mind me asking you? 45 soon okay. to be 46 don't let the gray hair fool you keith there's still a bit of youth in the body you need to get the just for men beard i thought about in. that but i think it'll wash out in the, in the sea every day well i think i'm only getting away with it now because i only have, pa- I have two patches of gray there that i fill in but but as soon as it all starts to go gray i'm not going to try and fight it you know it's, it's pointless, you know. I, I had a grey hair on my leg when I was 17. I, like When I was in school, I used to get called granddad when I'd have to stand up in class because I already had patchy bits of grey coming through. So it was it was a lost cause from very early on. Um, so what age were you when you started? What prompted you and what age were you? What age were you and what prompted you to go to, to see a therapist? So what prompted me, um, you know, I think in many ways, lots of things um, should have prompted me in much earlier stages, but um, it was 2014. um, I was the CEO of an investment firm. Um, I was, I was in a, it was in a, a a meeting. My office was in Malta at that stage. I was still living um, in Ireland. um, at that point, I used to, fly out to Malta once a week and fly home and fly everywhere. I was doing like 150, 200 flights a year. Um, I was sat in this meeting, important, important conversation going on, um, clients who had flown in trying to close a deal. And I started to feel like I was having a heart attack um, or possibly a stroke. I wasn't too sure. I can remember kind of moving my hand, my right hand from my heart and then feeling my left arm and trying to remember which is it they say if it's a stroke? Do you feel it in your arm or your heart? So I was trying to self-diagnose while sitting there, and there was a whole bunch of people in my in my boardroom. And I remember my periphery vision just shut off completely. And now I could only see people who were 
like right in front of me. So I sat in this meeting like a lunatic, like everybody, every time somebody spoke, I was like playing tennis with my head. I'd have to swing around and look them in the eye and then swing around, look the next person in the eye. And all the time, just feeling like tightness in my chest, um, pounding in my heart. I've literally felt like it was coming out of my mouth. Um, but I kept thinking, oh, you know, I need to close this deal. I need to get this finished. Um, and, uh, and that went on for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. Closed the deal, had to get rid of them and uh, hopped into a cab and went back to my hotel, went to the bar, lashed a couple of whiskeys in and thought, don't know what that was, but, uh, you know, I didn't have a heart attack. I'm still alive. So uh, I think that'll be okay. Um, and it was only when I got back and spoke to my wife, she was like, mm, maybe you did have a heart attack. So I, I went off to, to the Beacon Hospital and, and had all the tests, everything connected to me. And, and, and you know, they went through the, through the, the, the full gambit. And uh, I remember the physician at the end saying to me, you don't think there's any possibility that maybe, you know, it's stress or, or anxiety. And I was like, oh, don't be daft. Like, that's, that's how I thrive. Like, without stress and anxiety, I'm nothing. Like, that's what drives me forward. And I remember thinking, you're lunatic. Um, and then the next three or four weeks, I just started to slowly unravel. Um, and uh, I, I, one day, my wife said to me, I'd stopped petting our dogs. And I remember... I was losing energy and I could only focus on a few key things. And one of them was I still had to fly to my office and I still had to run my business and I still had to be a dad and I still had to be a husband, but anything else was just getting shut out, friends, petting our dogs, taking care of myself. All that was getting shut down because slowly but surely I was just closing in. Um, and the chaos then in my head just went bananas. You know, the, the inner, the inner critic became, you know, like an orchestra of, of critics. It was, it was multiple voices, all screaming, shouting, looking for attention. And the final straw was I heard, I woke up one night after hearing like a bang in my head, which sounded like a huge balloon bursting. And I woke my wife up and I'm like, Jesus, did you hear that? And she was like, what? I said, I sound like a balloon bursting or something. And uh, she was going, oh, you know, I think you're, I think you're just, you know, well. And and I googled it as you do to see if you know is this a brain tumor. And uh, and there is this thing where you know the chaos and the noise and the intensity in our heads actually creates like a, a bang, an explosion in the brain because there's just this over intensity of, you know, hopeless and helpless thoughts. Um, I wasn't sleeping properly. I was probably maybe getting two or three hours sleep at best. So I was, I was desperately falling apart um, and I needed to get help. And this all happened in a short space of time. Like from, from the point of things starting to go wrong to this moment was probably six to eight weeks. Um, and, uh, and I went into therapy and found a, a phenomenal psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Pradeep Chatter. And I wanted to be in therapy with somebody who wasn't going to medicate me because my dad had been medicated all his life and I was fearful. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with medication, but I was, I was afraid of that. And he'd had electric shock treatment when I was a kid. So I wanted to find me again. I knew somewhere in there, there was me. And then there was this outer layer of criticism and disdain and, and unhappiness. And I wanted to find that pathway back, but I didn't want to get medicated because I knew that would just take me on a bit of a haze off to one side so i wanted to kind of go full in 
Um, and I heard I heard this guy, Pradeep Chadha, speaking on, on the radio. Um, he was on Pat Kenny. I was about to head to New York to another um, specialist psychologist who a friend had referred me to, who works with people around non-medicated options and also uses um, meditation practices. And I was ready to go and spend three months with this guy in New York. I heard Pradeep Chadha talking to Pat Kenny and, and uh, I jumped on and, and worked with him for a few months and then became a student. Wow. Did you enjoy life? Uh, did you enjoy that, that the high life as it were, like the, the deals, the, the drinking, the, the traveling, the, like, was that, I mean, did you, at the, in the moment, I mean, obviously looking back now, you're going, geez, that was no way to live, but you know, you must've, it must've been a bit of crack. You know, I often reflect back on that. I think, yeah, there was, you know, there was unquestionably moments where it was good, but there were far greater moments where it was not good. And, and in many ways, like I realized I was a workaholic. It was a complete drug. It was an addiction. And um, to, to get through and to feed my addiction, I had to give up on many other things. So it's, you know, I, I a friend of mine um, who, who, who's a, uh, come out of being a heroin addict and 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 is is now doing some incredible work in neuroscience and we we had this exact conversation a few weeks ago i think our addictions are not dissimilar his is completely unacceptable from a societal perspective whereas mine was really acceptable because i had really nice cars and houses but i was also forsaking everybody and anybody along the way um so I think, was it good? Maybe. I mean, I got married when I was 30. And, and honestly, from 19 to 30, I went to London at 19. I can't remember a huge amount of, of those years because I just worked all the time. Um, and when I wasn't working, I was probably getting pretty hammered. Um, and, I, and I didn't drink during the week back then because I was pretty focused on work. But when I did drink, it was oblivion territory you know get me away from this so it was a means to an end and ultimately why did i do it because i wanted people to see me to be a certain way i felt like this is what society was asking of me and this was how in some way it would ingratiate me into its into its you know bosom and i'd, I'd suddenly be happy but you're chasing this constant material um dream and every time you put your hand on that trophy that you think oh now i've achieved this or made this great ideal or bought this business or whatever else, it would just evaporate. And, and it became this vacuous existence that, that eventually consumes you. And was it, uh, so when you were, so when you left, when you went to London at 19, it was investment banking. Was that the, is that, I'm trying to get my head around the type of work you do. Cause, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not, yeah, <laughs> I went to I went well. I went to London. I went to London and um, initially worked in in banking um, for an Irish bank, um, and and then spent the next uh, well 15, 16 years in financial services. But yeah, I spent three years in the bank um, uh, in banking in London. Had a phenomenal time. Um, got a bunch of promotions. Made a lot really a lot of money for somebody that age like I bought an apartment when I was I don't know 21 22 um so I had money and all that kind of stuff but I, I was never motivated by money I was just driven to to keep pushing to to be successful um in whatever way that I felt that was likely to be um 
So were you like, yeah, were you like was, one of the mental ride. Were you like one of the guys on on, uh, on Wall Street or uh, <clears throat> the Wolf of Wall Street or the Big Short? Were you one of these guys? Yeah, I mean, I I was that was that was the likely place for it to all go. Um, except I realized that I wasn't good in the corporate world. Um, and and by by twenty three, um, I, I knew I wasn't going to get any further in in my role. So I quit and and set up my own firm. Um, and and as as liberating as that was, and I and I quit and, and didn't have any idea what I was going to do next. I just didn't like what was going on, and who what was happening within my own role. Um, so I remember being unemployed. Suddenly, you know, the euphoria of yeah, screw you, screw the system, I'm out of here. And then like, oh shit, right? I don't actually have a job now. So um, set up my own my own business, um, which which you know when you're a workaholic, you know that's like you know bringing yourself into like ten kilos of of, of heroin. Um, so I was immersed in that, and and then built that business then over the next um, eight years, um, and lost everything about who I was, but became everything about how I wanted people to see me. Um, and and there's a massive gap between those two points. Mm. Um. Yeah, it's in, it. It is interesting the 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 things you realize through, um, you know, through therapy. What you think it's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of stuff like behaving like you think other people want to see you behave, or you know, behaving in a way that you think other people will like. Reaching for things that won't ultimately bring you happiness. Um. You know, and there's there's reasons we do that. It's it's upbringing, it's society, it's uh, it's all of that kind of stuff. So, were you worried about going into therapy and losing? I mean, obviously you were making money. Like, were you worried about business? Were you worried about like you're you're, you're changing from the business and the money being your identity, and then you're putting yourself in the hand? I mean, obviously you're ready. I mean, I know when I turned up with Luke, my therapist, I was ready to do the work. You know, I it was something kind of in the back of my mind for a while I didn't quite have the the almost heart attack that you had but um like a what you I mean if you hear this guy on the radio like here's another thing right and you might identify with this when I went to see the therapist it was a very practical decision and this is it's a great way to get men into therapy because like if I was and probably what you were doing like a year before that I was like I was running training for marathons I was doing all the things I was looking at my nutrition I was I was doing everything I could to keep myself like fit and healthy to do the job I needed to do but the job was sap everything was towards the job everything was pointing towards the job how do I get you know I need to get to bed early I need to make sure I'm fit I need to go to the gym I need to make sure blah, blah. and then when the shit hit the fan I was like okay what next therapy great so this guy is going to sort my head out and then i can continue is that kind of where you how you approached it ah oh, absolutely like you know 100% i just thought you know this needs a bit of a tweaking and then and then i'm going to be like superhuman because you know i've got everything else sorted all i need now is just you know you go in and you think that there's somebody there who's just going to be turning a few dials and and they go oh yeah okay we've upgraded the software you're ready to go, man. Get back out into the world. Yeah. Um, Go back to doing what you were doing. Your head's good now. Yeah. 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 You'd be grand, like off you go. But it's really like, you know, I would say to people, even if it's just, 
a practical like men work on practical thing you know we, we do things for practical reasons and that was the reason i went to therapy was okay i just need to fix this thing now and then i'm good to go to go back to doing what i was doing um so so you obviously approached it with the same the same feeling the same thought process yeah i did um I, that's initially where i was going in the context of wanting to get in i remember then i actually had my session booked and i was due to start i think like on a thursday that week and it was a sunday afternoon before the thursday i'd already spoken to the therapist on the phone and um i just woke up that day and just had this this sense come over me of uh suicide like just just this this it was like it was almost like a warm blanket that i put on all of a sudden and it just I remember sitting at our kitchen table um in in our house at the time and just thinking oh yeah that 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 could work right because um you know my wife will find somebody else and he'll definitely be a better dad than I am and a better husband than I am. And all of this noise that's in my head, like I can stop it if I just end my life. And I remember just feeling like that's a really possible, oh, yeah, that's that's the solution. And, and really logically thinking about this whilst having a cup of coffee, sitting at the kitchen table, nobody was around me. And then I just had this moment of, hold on a second, hold on. And I, and I remember I texted my therapist and I said to him, um, I just wanted to check in, um, you know, this is probably how things go, but um, I'm having these overwhelming um, feelings of wanting to end my life. And I just thought maybe I should text you about that. And and he responded straight away. And, and he said to me, um, it's okay. You know, what I want you to do is nothing between now and tomorrow morning and just come and see me first thing. But he said, you know, don't plan anything, not do anything else. Just come and see me now tomorrow morning. Um, and, and away I went. But I think in so many ways, and, and you know, we, we, we both know men who have ended up taking their lives. It is the capacity to reach out and just say something or for a friend or somebody else to notice that, you know, you're not yourself. But I, I know how close that moment came um, and and. If I hadn't have managed to already line myself up with therapist, I often think, what would have happened? I don't know. Maybe I would have still had enough semblance to, to hold back. But um, it was it was a pretty dark and bleak moment. And and you know, outside of the chaos in my head, you know, we had we had money, we had wealth, we had a house, we had cars, we had holiday homes, we had all these kind of things. But but eventually, you realize that. If you can't find the capacity to be comfortable with who you are and in your own skin, you become your own internal terrorist, you know. And and, and I felt like I was just ready to, you know, pull the ripcord and and, and end it all. Wow. And um, had you at that point when you you had started seeing your therapist at that point? So you had had a couple of sessions. Nope. You were just spoken to him on a call. Yeah. So you were due to go see him. So you had a go, due to go and see him that week. We hadn't had, we hadn't met yet. So you had someone to call. You were like, okay, Jesus, this might be something for this guy. Yeah, I better let him know just in case. Um and but I also did think maybe this is maybe I shouldn't tell him like this, maybe this is maybe this is just normal. You know, that's like man, it's like uh, maybe maybe I should just try and work through it on my own. Yeah, we're not great at um I did, a, I did I, there's on this podcast I had a chat with Mark O'Halloran he's a director actor 
Um, and he said, men, men of a terrible are terrible for backing. We're terrible for backing ourselves into a corner that we just can't yeah. get out of because a lie begets a lie begets a lie. And then we're like, we're, we're telling everybody we're fine. We're telling everybody everything's great. We're, you know, on the, on the outside, we're grand. Don't worry about me. Everything's cool. And you keep up the charade. And, and, you know, you know, luckily for me, I never got to that, but like men lie about finance, what's in the bank. They tell their wives all sorts of things. And the next thing they know, they're in a situation where they've told everybody everything's fine and it's fucking the exact opposite. And then the only way out is, is something absolutely ca- catastrophic, maybe suicide or something terrible that creates, yeah. that creates chaos, you know? Um, so what, how is your, how is your experience with therapy? Like in the first, were, were you, did you, did you go every week at the start or what, what was that? What was the arrangement? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I was properly. Um, <laughs> so, at the end of the first session, he was like, I need to see you next week. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he probably wanted to say, I need to see you tomorrow, tomorrow but yeah. didn't want to frighten me. Um, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's funny. I'd been, so uh, I'd been previously in, um, therapy sessions about two years prior to this um so we 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 um had lost our second child and um we brought our son who was uh four years older um at the time to therapy on various occasions throughout his life just to kind of check in and see how he is and we were with this kind of grief therapist and um and then she said, oh, look, it'd be good to have you all together as a family. So we all kind of went together as a family. Um, and uh, and I said to my wife, you know, I think you might need a bit more time with her, you know, to, to kind of work through your stuff. Um, and I remember sitting in that room and, and she said to me at the end of it, um, I, I think, Justin, it would be really beneficial if you were to come for sessions, a few sessions on your own. And I left there going. Your woman's off her rocker. Like I'm so together about everything. You know, I I know we've been through trauma. I know we've lost somebody, but you know, I'm okay. Um, and my wife, of course, was totally processing her grief and dealing with with everything. So I'm now sat with this therapist in my session after having those dark thoughts and um and falling apart. I knew my life was falling apart. And and he said to me. Uh, incredible words of wisdom he said listen if you do everything that i tell you to do and if you do the homework and if you come here and you follow what what we need to do he said your life will change not to the way it was but to a better way but he said it's all up to you you know this is this is your gig therapy is only what what you're willing to bring here and what you're willing to do outside of the room and i thought you know as a as a very driven determined um person in my life i thought well that's cool i'll do that and then life will be phenomenal so so i signed up as if it was like some new elixir drug um thinking that i'd just be you know superhuman but but you know of course you get to spend some time with yourself and 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 look in the mirror and come to terms with who you are and and all the male stereotypes and i was filled with them you know grow up hair get stronger man up you know push ahead and, and that works for a time, no question about it. You know, you, you will get away with that for, for quite some time, but there's almost like a cliff that that chant brings you to. And then you're like, <laughs> you're just going to fall on your ass. Um, so I'd fallen on my ass. I knew I was falling apart. Um, I knew internally I was dying. 
Um, so I was ready for whatever whatever happened at that moment. I just needed to, to, to shut the noise off in my head. It was just relentless. And do you mind bringing me back to when you lost your child? How was, how did, I mean, I don't want to pry too much, but. Oh, no, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, look, it's um, very happy to talk about it. Um, so we, we, uh, we lost our, our second son, Joshua. Um, we we, sorry, we had sorry. our first. Sorry to hear oh, thanks. Thanks, man. Um, we had our we had our first um, son, Luca, in 2007. And then when we went on to to try and have for a, a second, um, Beatrice had uh, my wife, Beatrice had three miscarriages and things were, were really rough. Um, it really wasn't working out for us. Um, and, and to be honest, I was not present in any way, shape or form to the reality of her pain during that period of time. Um, you know, I knew it was going on, but I wasn't really aware of the emotional trauma that she was going through. I just kept thinking, oh, well, you know, just hopefully be able to eventually have another child. Um, and she was suffering a lot. So we, at the end of the third miscarriage, we sat down and spoke and she said, look, I just can't go on with this anymore. So we agreed to stop um, and just be really happy with what we had. We were very lucky with Luca. Um, but in that time that we sat at that agreement, it turned out she was pregnant. Um, so that pregnancy went on quite well, went through all the early scans, things were going in, in according to plan. And we decided that we'd have, we were living in the UK at this stage, and we decided we'd have um, one last holiday before the baby arrived. So she was like 25 weeks pregnant. So coming up to six months, um, we, we went down to Spain. Um, I'd sold a business at this point. We were thinking about possibly moving to Spain and living there for a few years anyway. So we thought, well, let's shoot down, have a look at some houses, take a week off, um, and, and then come back and prepare for, for baby number two. And I think three days into being in Spain, um, she woke me up at three o'clock in the morning. Her waters had broken. Um, I couldn't get my head around this because I was thinking that can't be possible. You know, it's way too early. Um, we were about a but 180 miles from Malaga at the time. Um, and uh, this was 2010. And we had to try and figure out what to do next. So we, we had a panic dash around the south of Spain um, to try and get to a maternity hospital, which we did. We got in there. Um, they stabilized her and said, you're not going anywhere for you know the next couple of months till, uh, and hope, can hopefully hold back this pregnancy. Um, so life stopped at that moment completely. Um, and three days later, she, she started bleeding very badly um, and they had to do an emergency cesarean. So she was whipped off and I lost her in a hospital, this massive maternity hospital in the south of Spain. I lost her for 10 hours that day. I couldn't speak any Spanish, no idea where she was. Nobody knew where she was. Um, and, uh, and then eventually I got news. So I was outside the hospital smoking about, 200 fags and, and and you know copious amounts of, uh, of of wine trying to hold my shit together and um and then i heard okay you know she's she's back in a ward um the baby uh, we don't know we don't think he's going to survive 24 hours um and uh and he did and he survived six months in neonatal intensive care joshua um and we 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 never left spain for a year after that point um 
So that was a wild ride. He was in neonatal intensive care. He had pneumonia a few times. He had to have blood transfusions. He had collapsed lungs. He wouldn't feed. Um, he was like less than a kilo when he was born. He looked like a like a small bird. Um, it was unreal. But we had him, and we were amazed every day that he was breathing was was a good day to be around. Um, and uh, after six months of neonatal intensive care and, and an intense time where we were balancing the time between our four-year-old and, and getting into neonatal intensive care, one of us would be in the hospital with Joshua, the other one would be with Luca. The hospital gave us an offer to train us as his carers um, and see if how he would be if we got him out. So um, he recovered enough, still not well enough to be air ambulanced back to the UK or to Ireland. But they had a thing where if we could live within a couple of kilometers of the hospital, they would call on us every second day. And we were trained how to deal with his oxygen because he was oxygen dependent. He was tube fed. Um, he uh, he needed to have his, his airways vacuumed out um, multiple times a day. So so we thought, well, OK, great. This gets out of the hospital environment. So we spent the next five months as his carers, um, but back in and out of hospital because he was struggling lots of times. And every time he struggled and we couldn't sustain him at home, they'd bring him back in, they'd intubate him, which is a really unpleasant experience for any of us. But a baby, it's really bad. So we were doing a lot of rehab with him. When they intubate, they have to physically pin the baby down and and go through the intubation and put it back in. And all the good work that you do um, stops. So that was intense intense period of time um but actually in many ways a nice period of time because i also was incredibly present throughout that because you don't have any choice to be but present um so there's lots of things i can be thankful for of that area but um it was unreal wow um and joshua survived until how, long, how old was Joshua? He was 11 months old. Um, so we'd, we'd kind of, we'd gotten to the point, like bizarrely as, as the serendipitous and the universe operates, um, just before um, this all happened, my niece ran a fundraiser for Jack and Jill in Ireland and I'd come home and I was involved in horse racing for quite some time and I owned a lot of um lot of racehorses and my and my horses used to be stabled in Tipperary with with Tommy Stack and I'd, I'd met Jonathan Irwin um through Goffs at one stage and then my niece organized this fundraiser for Jack and Jill and I went along and I listened to to Jonathan talking about Jack and I was blown away by the story and it was really shocking and harrowing to hear um and I'd say it was maybe you know six to eight months later I was Jonathan Erwin and Joshua was my Jack. Um, and, and I rang Jonathan and I said, you know, Jonathan, remember we met through horse racing and also my niece did a fundraiser. I said, I need your help. Like we're, we're stuck out here in Spain. Um, at this stage, we were probably nine or 10 months in and we were hoping to get an air ambulance to get him back. And the aim was that if we could sustain him long enough and keep him in good shape outside a hospital, we could fly him back. Um, but I said, we, you know, we, we've no idea how to integrate into the hospital systems in Ireland, how to get care or support. We were knackered, like, you know, <laughs> talk about endurance sport. Parents who take care of um, special needs kids or terminally ill children, you know, there should be an Olympics for them because um, we were just wiped out. 
So um, Jonathan uh, got one of his wonderful um, people to help us and they organized with Crumlin and everything else. So we kind of teed things up and we were ready to go around about November. So we were 10 months in Spain at this stage and we'd hoped to get back in January. Um, and Joshua was showing enough science that we could we could get him back on an air ambulance and, and rehabilitate him. And we knew he was going to have difficulties. He was likely to be um, suffering with cerebral palsy, but you know he, he was alive and, and we were just so grateful for that. And uh, Christmas Eve uh, 20, 2010, um, he, he deteriorated really bad with us at home. Um, and again, we all hopped into the car as usual, oxygen tanks, you know, Luca, the two of us raced off to the hospital, got him in, um, the medical team met us, um, and, and they could see that he was deteriorating again quite badly. So it was intubation once again. So all the rehab stuff we've been doing, um, goes out the window. Um, and then they spoke to us afterwards and said, you know, look, we're not your normal medical team. And because it's Christmas Eve, you guys aren't here we now know the story of you guys being stuck in Spain for a year and we know the plight and how much you're fighting to keep him alive. And, but he's been intubated too many times. I mean, basically put on life support too many times. And if we hadn't known the story, we wouldn't have actually agreed to do it this time around. So this is, this is the end. Um, and, uh, that was a shock to the system, um, and something that we had to deal with, but, what followed was was a bit of a more of a fight to get him released into our care because they wanted him to die in hospital. And, and we thought, you know, this guy has just spent too much time in hospital. We want him to die with us. Um, so we fought a battle to have him released into our care. They wouldn't allow us, to, I mean, the irony is they wouldn't allow us to take him home because we would have had to administer morphine patches um, while he was struggling at the end. And they were afraid that we might kill him. And I was kind of pointing out to them that, you know, don't you see... <laughs> Um, the reality of your statement. So we eventually won that battle. We got him home and we had the most incredible two weeks of my life um, where we could strip away all the medical stuff. We could be a family. Um, my parents came over from Ireland. Beatrice's mom was over from Germany. And we got to to be together, to, to love, to cry, to grieve, to say goodbye um, and, and enjoy those those final days and, and a couple of weeks together. So, yeah, that was that was wild and intense. Nice to have that time at the end, though, and you know, to say goodbye properly and uh, the memories, I suppose, as well. You know, it was wonderful. Like it was, it was, it was absolutely wonderful. And I look back in that year, and and yeah, you know, if I was to write. The, the hardships on, on, on the right side of a page and, and the easy times on the left, the hardships would be, you know, pages and pages, but I don't remember them all. I remember the nice bits. I remember the smiles, the happiness, the time together, you know, the love that we had. And, 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 and his final few days were beautiful. And I remember when, when, when Joshua had died, um, my, we, we knew it was likely to happen this particular morning because he'd been slowly deteriorating. Um, so my parents took our other son, Luca, down to the beach. He was four at the time. And Beatrice went off and got Luca ready and they, they, they packed up some food and off they went. And I was upstairs with Joshua all this time and, and Beatrice came up and she'd been down there for an hour getting everything sorted and up she came and I had him in my arms and I literally just passed him to her. And the minute she went into his arms, he died. Um, and it was, 
so beautiful. It was like he knew he wanted to be with her at the end. And, you know, I was I was witnessing something really quite incredible. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was probably the only period in my life up until, you know, probably going back to when I was a kid where I'd been present for myself and, and other people around me. And and it was astounding. Wow. Um, and I presume from what I know from you now, having talked to you for a little while, you was your response to all that to throw yourself back into work then? Oh, yeah. Like absolutely. like having it's it's interesting, that, you know, this, you know, having had this incredible time, you know, being present for people. And then the reaction is to completely just walk away from it, you know. Because that's because everybody deals with these things differently, you know, and that was all you knew, I'd imagine. Absolutely, you know, and and I mean, the worst part of all of that was that um, five years earlier, four years earlier, my sister lost um, her son who was eighteen months old, um, and 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 I was in Ireland. I flew home that weekend when he died. He died of meningitis, Nabil, and um, I remember in the, in the weeks after that. Um, drinking a lot and having like you know a few serious benders where I'd wake up with a bottle of whiskey empty at the side of the bed and and that was my coping mechanism and then that became my biggest fear ever was what if I eventually have children and one of them dies and now it had happened to me and I was like oh my god and so so when after that year that was the impact of my god that happened and then you start to think well if that happens then everything can happen like everything can go wrong so I need to find a way out of this. So my maladaptive behavior was work. Um, so I threw myself into it. And I remember three weeks into uh, maybe maybe three or four weeks after his funeral, I was pitching an idea to um, the board of a bank in Ireland. And, and the CEO of this, this bank was actually at Joshua's funeral. So I pitched this idea to them. And I went, you know, this is a great idea. And you could do this, you could do that. And da-da-da-da-da. And they finished and afterwards um he said to me like you know that's that's great and you know we're interested in everything else but like why are you here you know i was at your son's funeral a few weeks ago and i was like you know and i thought he was crazy and i said well this is what i do and this is this is how i how i move on um so i didn't grieve i didn't deal with it um i worked and i flew and i lived the next three years at 100 miles an hour and my wife went off into the Wicklow Mountains because um, we moved back to Ireland at that stage because we thought well let's just you know reposition ourselves and try and figure our shit out or well that's what she did I just repositioned them and ignored my shit um, and she spent you know the next uh, few months walking in the Wicklow Mountains with our new golden retriever and and you know letting the grief run through her um, so in that panic attack in 2014 was the grief coming back. And and of course, you know, Keith, and I, I know you've spoken about being in therapy as well. It, it's Joshua was the straw that broke the camel's back. Like, but, you know, the camel was already pretty damn broken um, pro- before Joshua. Like I probably needed to be in therapy five years, 10 years, 15 years ago. Um, so lots of things had to be worked through. Um, and, uh, and 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 yeah, and I remember like after I went into therapy, and we were texting the other day talking about 
about alcohol and alcohol was, was becoming a crutch as well. Um, but it was probably two and a half months or three months into therapy. Um, and, and, and I got arrested, um, while I was in Malta, um, which was just a mental story, but it was, it was, it was like everything in life was starting to tell me you got to change. Um, and, and, it was these are all these things that brought me to the point to stop drinking. I never, I never felt like I was an alcoholic. You know, I wasn't drinking during the day. I wasn't, you know, hiding bottles of vodka behind the behind the, the fridge or whatever. But I was drinking every night. You know, it was it was just the kind of fuel that was keeping the keeping the thing moving along. Um, yeah, I mean, the drink is just, you're just medicating yourself to kind of, you know, and the, the one thing I often say when, when I, when I, when I'm talking to people about drink is that, uh, if you're listening to this, it's, you know, it shouldn't be another thing to beat yourself up over if you're having a few drinks, because I've heard it so many times from therapists and from people who've gone to therapy and that, that, that it has been said to them, you know, you should be, you should, you should thank the drink because the drink probably kept you alive and the drink is what got you to to where you are today um so just just give me a second there justin yeah it's in the washing machine but you'll have to put it on spin though it's not gonna be dry well you need to take it out it's still wet now what time are you going at he's going into town that's finn he's going to the, like it's <laughs> going it's into like, town in that <laughs> well i don't know where he's going he's like i'm just walking he's he just you know they're at the stage now where they're just like they're sick of being in the house and he has a friend that he's allowed to be with and that's their kind of like friend bubble and they just want to walk somewhere i'm like anyway um but the the thing about the drink is that uh they, they can be it's the medication that can get you through uh, get you to where you are and keep you alive and keep you going and sometimes yeah, there's a book i read about it called uh we are the luckiest and she was saying that it's easier to go into an off license get a bottle of wine than go to the doctor and ask for some medication you know and it's probably cheaper as well and more socially acceptable as well than telling somebody that you've you've gone to the doctor and he's giving you some xanax and stuff so that we we all deal with it differently and and i found that the drink thing i, I mean i i used to say to luke the, my therapist he said what about drink you know and he go what about it and i said well you know what do you think of my, my habits like my, you know i drink at the week i you know i explained to him and he's like well yeah and like not that he, he he never said to me that i should give up drinking I, I kept waiting for him to tell me you know that's the thing about therapy like you're waiting for the person to tell you what to do and he's like yeah are you okay with that and i'm like i don't know should i be like maybe maybe i'm okay with that and i'm you know as you said like i wasn't i wasn't a heavy drinker at all i didn't drink every night i drank at weekends you know um but uh it's like uh, you know you're trying to I was trying to measure how much you drink up. Like if I had spoke to somebody, like if I was on the radio and I was interviewing famous people, the question I always want to ask them, but I never did was, how much do you drink every week? <laughs> Just so I could compare with somebody, you know, but uh, you know, also somebody su successful. So if somebody was successful, I go, oh, how much do you drink? Because like yeah. if you're successful and you're drinking, then that's okay. Um but he never, he never said to me to give up drink. And then I, I just remember one weekend just going, just don't want to drink anymore because I felt because I'd done the work and I felt so much better about myself. I didn't hate myself anymore. I liked myself. I liked living in my own head. And I knew that the feeling I'd get from this glass of 
wine, two glasses of wine, wouldn't match how I felt right now. So it was grand. And that was a beautiful moment for me. Uh, because then you realize in that moment that you were chasing a feeling. And then you realize that through therapy, you got that feeling. And then you didn't need the booze anymore, which was sweet, you know? Yeah. And, 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 I, and I get that. And, and, you know, to be honest, like I, 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 I ended up training as, as a therapist with, with my own therapist um, for, for a few years afterwards. And although I got to the point with him where he said to me, you know, I think you need to give some serious consideration to alcohol. And, and at the time when he said that to me, you know, he's he's a, an Indian man in his 60s living in, in Dublin. And I was like, you, you know, no disrespect, but like this is Ireland, right? You can't not drink. Um, that was my initial response. Um, then I, then I subsequently got, got arrested, um, and ended up in a, in a court case in Malta where the, where the police tried to frame me. Um, and, and we had to fight wrongful arrest and, 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 and prove them wrong. And Malta was pretty corrupt at this stage and still is to be frank. Um, and, uh, that, that took, that took about five months and three high court appearances. And, and, and during this time, um, Pradeep was my, my therapist. And, uh, and then he said to me, you know, mm, you know, maybe alcohol. And, and what happened with, with, with that and alcohol was that I, I, I saved this kid from, from being, um, really badly assaulted one night at, at two o'clock in the morning. Um, he was getting the absolute shit kicked out of him, um, by a bouncer at a nightclub. And I was wandering up to taxi rank um, I intervened and uh, and then called the cops to get the bouncer arrested. Um, and uh, in, the cops came and, and they weren't arresting the bouncer and they weren't even paying attention to the kid who I got blood all over myself from the kid, all over my clothes and everything else. So I kind of went, hmm, something's not right here. So so I started saying to the cops, you know, you, you need to arrest the guy. There he is, like pointing at him. And the guy's like, a complete nutcase and there's cctv cameras all around the place you know it's it's a, it's an easy nick here um but uh, the cops were getting more and more unhappy that i was telling them that they should arrest this kid and and then you know the kid was unconscious on the ground as well when the when the police arrived so eventually an ambulance came they got him in the uh, the bouncer who was like this hardcore you know ripped dude looked at me and 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 gave me that you know that sign of the finger across the neck as if to say i'm gonna kill you um and the cops were leaving and i went up to the cops and went guys you can't go you can't just leave me like a i want to talk to some one of your superiors like why isn't somebody doing with this and b that guy's gonna kill me and as i was protesting and luckily enough i'd started recording on my iphone because i figured the cops were up to no good um a cop came around jumped me from behind elbowed me threw me on the ground four of them jumped on top of me handcuffed me, dragged me along the the road, threw me into the police car, brought me to the to the police station. Um and uh I was I was in this cell for um hours and I had asthma at the time so they they really come down hard and and uh, I couldn't breathe when they were on top of me um and my lip, ribs were all bruised. So I started having an asthma attack in the cell and they refused to give me my inhaler and said there was no inhaler with my with my personal belongings, which I knew there was. Um, and uh, eventually when I was gasping in my last breath, they opened the cell door, collapsed on the floor, crawled through the station. They called an ambulance and the paramedic came in and they wouldn't allow the paramedic to attend me. 
So I crawled out the stairs of this thing, got into an ambulance, went to the hospital, um, was seen by by the doctors. They could see my oxygen levels were were not in good shape at all. Um, and uh, the cops were there too. And I'm I'm on a gurney, handcuffed to a gurney. Um, and uh, the cops are doing me for assault um, and um, um, breaking the, um, the peace and, and assault and battery of a police officer and all these kind of mad things that they were saying. And luckily, I'd been in therapy at this stage, and, and I'd been learning how to meditate. And the only thing that got me through, and these, I had these two cops beside me the whole time in the hospital looking at me like I was a lunatic, but I was able to just sit there and be peaceful, be still, watch my breath, slow down, and think, all right, I'm going to get through this. Um, but they, they set me up big time. I, I had to, I stayed in a hotel in Malta all the time. I was very well known in, in financial circles. I was known to, to a lot of government ministers and the financial regulator and everything else. So I'm now proper perp walk, perk walk back to the hotel. I said to the cops, you know, I need to get myself changed. They were bringing me to, to be arraigned. Um, after, after they, that being, um, in the hospital for I don't know probably six or seven hours. My wife didn't know where I was. My 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 fellow employees didn't know where I was. I remember eventually getting this doctor to call my wife, and I said to him, you know, okay, the cops think I'm some kind of arch criminal. I'm not, and thankfully he could see that this was kind of an unusual guy to be allegedly assaulting police officers. So I said to him, just ring her and just say to her. Um, you know, Justin's in hospital, um, you know, he's okay, but you need to to call um, JP, who was my lawyer, um, and he was also my business partner, and 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 let him know that he's arrested. So the, so the doctor went and told her all these things, but didn't mention the arrested part. So she just got, Justin's in hospital, he's okay, um, and, and called JP. So she, well, I don't know why he wants me to call JP. And, and she just thought, well, okay, I'll wait for him to call me, it'll be fine. So no outside contact allowed. I had no phone. Um, I'm then brought to my hotel, perp walk, handcuffs out. They wouldn't let me put a jacket over my over my hands. They wanted to properly disgrace me. Um, in there, uh, get get changed, get get down to the to the courthouse to be arraigned. The cops had turned up the tipped off the media, so there was film crew, there was flipping photographers, so all over the Maltese newspapers the next day. Um, uh, it's the first time I got to see my lawyer um, was was at that arraignment. And um, and then she sat with me afterwards and she went like, this is really serious. Like, first of all, they were trying to detain me in Malta so I couldn't come home. It was only because we could say that I, I check in once a week and my family are, are abroad. But she said, you know, the, the cops have come up with these charges. And um, if they win, you're going to be in prison for two years. And the, the differential between winning and losing is who is the judge. And if it's a judge that they like... Um, you're in deep trouble. Um, now, subsequently, um, Chris Packham got arrested in Malta um, about a year later. It was all over the media, and I, I connected to Chris after that happened. Um, the, he's a wildlife um, um, journalist from the BBC, and he was wrongfully arrested too. Yeah, um, Chris Packham. So much corruption. Yeah. Do you remember the guy that used to do like nature shows and stuff on BBC, probably like when we were kids? Does he still do Spring Watch? Spring Watch, yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know why we were talking about. It. Yeah, I know Chris Packham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that I know him, but uh, um, I'm sorry now. I just want to make sure. Yeah, he's um, he's uh, um, he does the Spring Watch, and how did he get arrested? 
I think he's got yeah, Asperger's. He's got Asperger's, doesn't he? Yeah. But yeah, he well, he was basically over there um, trying to uh, remonstrate with multi society about um, the 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 abuse that they were they were hunting um, birds and and he got onto the wrong side of the police because the hunting brigade in Malta were 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 in in good favour with the cops um, and and Chris lo and behold was also accused of of assaulting a police officer and arrested. Um, and uh, you know that he he fought that battle and and the media got heavily involved, but then a year after Chris's arrest, um, Daphne Caruna was was um, blown up. Um, who was a journalist in Malta, um, and uh, and Daphne was a fierce critic of the police and and of of society. So I came close to all of this, like this really dark side of life. Um, and I spent five months defending my position. Um, I had to get a um, an ex metropolitan police detective to come in and and find the kid who who I saved that night, who happened to be Italian and, and he'd gone home. Um, the cops did everything in their power to stop us at every turn, and um, thankfully we found the kid. He came along. The cops had loads of witnesses, um, and um, there were road sweepers who witnessed you know my violent acts and my aggression towards the police and everything else. And five cops all had like perfect testimony, it matched everything. But we found the two kids, and um, and they and they spoke phenomenally well in court, um, and and um, they just said, "Look, you know, we were we were about to be completely annihilated by this guy, and and I, one of them was unconscious." So they thanked me. Um, we presented some of our evidence, um, but not all of it yet. And um, my lawyers then called up the road sweepers again and reminded them what happens if you lie in court and, and and they started to have slightly better memories and the police case started to fall apart but that went on for five months um and uh, if i wasn't you know can you imagine i was already falling apart before that happened and then this happened but what i learned about drink and how the drink is is connected to all of this was yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, i'd been drinking that night right but i wasn't drunk i wasn't hammered but just because i had alcohol in my body, it allowed the police to make statements to say, oh, yeah, the Irishman was drunk. Mm. And, and the media even rolled a story like the drunk Irishman, you know, stereotypical stuff. Um, but, also, it, but, also, but also it's enough, I think, I think when you drink and when you have a drink, it's enough to kind of almost, you're almost fighting your own sort of doubts as well as to, you know, you, you give yourself a hard time as to what the fuck was I doing out there? Why, why, you know, why was I even out? Why was I not at home? And why was I not in bed? And you've, you have to struggle with yourself as well, you know, on top of, you know, them them having the excuse of the drunk Irishman, you know. Totally. I mean, so, so much so that, you know, and, and there's, 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 there's this psychological thing that happens in, in, in criminal cases, but the, the, the last piece of evidence, which was seen the last day of, of the trial, was was an overhead CCTV footage. And I'd listened to the police give their opinion so many times and, and their view of everything that I actually started to believe. And I started to say to my wife, geez, maybe I did do something wrong. Mm. Um, and it was only when we got to play my audio, which you couldn't see my video because my phone was in my pocket. And then um, my uh, Metropolitan Police detective who'd, who'd got this CCTV footage that the cops didn't want us to have. And we got it on the last day. And the two were played together in court. And I went... Oh yeah, that's what I did do. It was okay, but yeah. So, so my therapist at the time was saying to me, you know, consider a drink, and 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 all this time I'm in therapy with him, 
and and he's kind of laughing about it all too right because he's just he's just this wonderful kind of character and 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 he was going uh, you know maybe now's the time to think about it and i was like yeah yeah i think you're right i'm gonna stop drinking them <laughs> so man i could i feel like i could talk to you all day um so so the, the, so therapy then i mean i presume i presume your work your life your your how you live your life has completely changed to how you were therapy helped you get to a certain point i mean you knocked the booze on the head how did your work practices change how did you continue to you know how did i'd love to hear about how you figured out how to you know keep an income coming in but change your the model of how you worked and who you worked with the type of work you did and how meditation helped and all that like what was that kind of like from from the giving up the booze onwards what was that like yeah i mean meditation now for me is this is kind of seven years um the 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 change um when i realized that that i wanted to change life um and and i remember when when daphne um was was murdered in in malta that was kind of for me i need to get out of here like this place is so screwed and i'd already um started to to do a lot of research and study into buddhism and it was becoming a part of my life um and i didn't really like what i was doing in financial services i don't think i ever really did to be honest but i definitely didn't didn't want to continue on with that i wanted to change um so i i met my shareholders and my board and and told them, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. Um, and I didn't tell them I was intending to be a Buddhist because that would have like totally freaked them out. Um, but I think they were all initially convinced I was probably setting up some kind of competitive firm. Um, but I knew I wanted to change life um, and change tack. And, uh, and, and then from, from that point, you know, I found the idea of obviously not drinking, meditating every day, finding who I was. And, and ultimately, I suppose the best thing that I, I got to do was I spent um, the next two years working with um, my therapist, Pradeep Chatta, because the, the, the approach that he worked on with me was something he developed himself. And I said to him, I love this, you know, teach me. Um, I, I really want to understand what's going on here. And, and I started to understand what would it be like to be me? Like, what would it be like to actually just be me for a couple of days to, to you know, to be authentically inside this body and accept things as they are, like accept myself as I am, like all of my, my foibles, all the bits that are me that I've always thought are wrong, that I've hidden from the world. What's it like to just be okay with being yourself? Um, and, and I still work on that on, on an ongoing basis. And that was the, the strength that brought me to the point of making the changes that I needed to make. Um, and, uh, and I sold all my interests in the, in the financial services um, world over the next two and a half years and since 2018 um now i work um predominantly as as a therapist and and coach and i get loads of people who want me to coach them around i want to have like phenomenally draw strong mindset and i want to run a successful business and and i and I, it's just I have no interest in that anymore I'm, I'm interested in what would it be like to be okay with just being yourself um I think for a lot of people, especially, you know, like at our age and, and, you know, I know, um, Keith, you've written and spoken about coming to terms with, with stepping away from the two FM role. A lot of the times, if we suddenly lose that thing that we think everybody identifies us with as that's who we are, 
we're all at sea. Um, and, and, I, and I like to just look at the idea now of just helping people come to terms with what's it like just to be you and be all right with that, the good and the bad. Yeah, I mean, the difficulty I have at the moment that I'm working through is, and, and, and this, it's, it's important to talk about this because like therapy is great, it's a great tool, but it's difficult to find your way to, you know, I, I sometimes worry about, people get in touch with me and say, can you recommend a therapist? And I'm like, yeah, but I really want to further that conversation with them because you need to almost explain, look, this is this, this journey <laughs> and journey is the word that you have to use because there's no other, this voyage um, that you're about to go on will have its ups and downs and you're going to have to figure out, you're going to have to really kind of figure out how you make the future work for you you're going to change as a person your wife's not going to really recognize who you are for a little while there's going to be a disconnect there between the two of you your family are probably going to be a bit like well what the fuck is going on with Keith there he's kind of losing it isn't he and then you're going to start thinking that you are losing it because you why aren't you like I have an agent and they're probably wondering why isn't Keith looking to try and get back into radio or why isn't he he's not coming you know they sent me this proposal recently about a thing with RTE and I was like I you know, honestly, I have no interest in working with RT at the moment, you know, in that capacity at the moment, you know, and that's I'm just being honest, you know, and people are like, what the fuck is going on with this guy, you know, and you have to trust yourself. And it's it takes a long time and, and, and you have to be strong. And also, like, I have conversations with my wife and she's like, are you going to are you? She's I can see like, I mean, it, 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 it's working OK. You know, I'm, I'm doing a few bits as, that brings in a bit of money and, but I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out because I don't want to go back to old habits. She's like, should you not get a job? I'm like, do I need a job? Is there a way that I can, I'm trying to figure out how I can manage to bring in enough money to pay for everything without a job. Is that possible? You know, so, the, so there's a whole journey that you need. Like I, I like it. I, I like saying to people, therapy is great, but I also want to tell people, you know, buckle in. It's good. It's great. It's lovely to discover meditation. It's lovely to start with being yourself. And but you you'll have moments where your wife is like, "What the fuck is going on with you?" You'll have moments where you might not talk to your family for a while. Moments where you don't know what you're going to do. And there is that thing where you're trying to live in the present and not really worry about the future, not let the past affect you as much. So it's a kind of a, you know, how do you deal with people who are going through that as a coach? I think it's, it's it's a very relevant point um but i think a lot of the times look when especially for men when we get to the point of of coming close to therapy it's generally because everything else has just started to go wrong you know men don't often you know read a book and think you know maybe i need to spend more time in therapy it generally tends to be um you know there is a moment or an event so it's often the lesser of two evils when the decision is made <clears throat> and i think from from a coaching standpoint we can manage to step back from it without having to have therapy. So there are ways and means of, of, of dealing with it. And I think one of the great ways of, of approaching life is to rethink the material element of what we want. So work backwards. Instead of thinking, I need to get more money because I need to do this. If you can re-budget and work backwards and think, how much money do I actually really need to live? Most people don't know the answer to that question. Um, and I remember you know, doing an exercise like that ourselves a few years ago. And I was like really surprised that the amount of money that I was making and the amount of money that I needed were really quite different. 
And, and if I stepped it back to just how much I need, what would that give me? And, and it gave me time and it gave me space to do things that I felt happy to do. And I didn't have to do the things that I didn't want to do. So we, we often have to just take out a piece of paper and write shit down. You know, how much money do I need? Like, what are all my expenses? And then when you see what that is, what does it look like every month? And then figure out, can you bring that in doing something less, you know, and, and, and even somebody I know who works in a bank and I had this conversation with her a while ago and she's very senior in the bank and and she's not very happy and and she's got, you know, good pension and everything else. And I said to her, what is work for you? And she goes, well, I I need to have something to do. And, And we ended up having a long conversation where, where we eventually agreed that she could be really quite happy if she just had a job, um, you know, a functional job in Tesco's, and she was able to spend more time with her kids and more time with herself. And it's it's just realizing that if we can step away from our ego, which is really the one that defines how I need to be seen, and then work out how much money do I need, then there's a possibility. I'm not saying it's there for everybody, but there's a possibility that maybe you can jump off the, 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 the treadmill and just think, oh, why don't I give it a go? And, and why not? You know, fuck it. Like do it for six months. And, 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 and if you can, if you can just adapt your life a bit, it's worth it. But if you're mentally struggling, you have to give serious consideration to change. And that doesn't need to be therapy. That can be cold water swimming, getting outside, walking, talking to your friends, doing things that are good for you, but adapting your life. If, if you're, if you're feeling like things are going out of control is, is really important and, and opening up and talking to people about it. Do you worry that your control over your life at the moment is the same as, do you think like this is cause, and this is a thing that, that I'm finding. I don't have your discipline. So I, I don't go to bed at half nine. I don't get up at half five. I I'm, I'm you know, I'm struggling with I'll go for a long walk every day so I'm not like I'm not doing as much yoga as I'd like I try and meditate once at least maybe twice a day you know so do you think that your level of control over your life is similar to you know that's that seems quite that's I I I hope you take this in in good faith to me that seems quite uh quite controlled bedtime up at half five that's what works for you that's but it works for you yeah i mean bet look bedtime at half nine is just because i'm tired right yeah you know and, and 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 my body just wakes up at five in the morning so um i'm tired but I, I i definitely i totally get what you're saying because i have given consideration to this to this point and it was funny there was a great acid test for it so two days ago um i needed to get some work done i needed a, a video edited and it was like a 50 minute video and the guys who normally would do my video editing couldn't do it. And and I thought, okay, I need this by, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday. So I know what I'll do. I'll do it myself. So between Friday and and yesterday, I worked solidly on f- for 15 hours and finished this thing. I watched YouTube videos, how to edit videos, you know, learned everything you could learn about Final Cut Pro and nailed it. And, it's, and it looks beautiful. But I said to my wife, oh yeah, there it is. Like I could feel it coursing through my veins. I was like absolutely wired into my drug. Um, And the contrast between that behavior 
and getting up at five o'clock in the morning, meditating, like learning to just sit with myself, like learning just to kind of be with my own shit and, 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 and be okay with it. And then walking down to the beach and having a swim and having a cup of tea with a friend, the intensity scales are so different. I mean, this was, you know, properly, you know, pumping heroin straight into my veins and I could feel it. I physically feel it, you know, and, and, and you're shaking your head. You, it's, it is that adrenaline and it's, it scared the shit out of me to feel it yesterday. And I thought, oh man, like I, 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 I spoke to somebody who, who manages some um, of my, my investments and I asked him to, to, to invest in something for me last week. He went, you never asked me to do anything. And I said, oh yeah, I know, but just do this. Right. And that was like 10 o'clock in the morning and at half four, I rang him back and I went, sell that, get me out of it. And he went, what? And I said, I've just started to get involved in investments again. Don't ever let me do that again. And I need to get away from it. And I was about to teach a class that night on mindfulness. And I had spent the seven hours between the time I asked him to buy something when I sell it, thinking about that and thinking I'm going to get obsessed. So I know what obsession for me feels like. And I have to stay away from it. Um, and like I said, you know, my friend Brian, who was a heroin addict, and me, I don't see there being a huge amount of difference. Mine is just socially acceptable. Um, but I think we have to recognize what it is that draws us into that darkness. And I know work will do that. So I think, yeah, okay, possibly people could think that the intensity, the way that I live, looks intense compared to the way that they live. But um, I think I'd look at a lot of people who, who, who live their lives the way they live them now and think, that looks really intense. Have you ever thought about just being okay with yourself and just going, fuck it, like, why don't I just accept who I am and stop listening to every mindset podcast and every guru who's going to tell me how to be more successful and happier and fitter and stronger and just be yourself. Hmm. Yeah. And that's all it is, really, is being happy with yourself and learn to, you know, the, the things that men wouldn't ever talk about, but learn to love yourself and uh Learn to sit with yourself and be happy with yourself and be happy with your thoughts and not beat yourself up all the time. Does your how how does your is your wife happy with her new husband? Yeah, yeah, you know, she's um she she was unhappy at times with the old version. Um so when when the new download came, she was uh yeah, she embraced it. I mean, yeah, of course there's like rocky parts when you're going into therapy and everything else, but um but yeah, she is. And, and, you know, we, the only time we ever argued was, you know, when, when I was drunk, you know, and, and, and so she was really happy that I stopped drinking and not like I was some kind of, um, you know, terrible drunk, but she could see that there were parts of me that were, that were changing. Um, and I think the biggest part, like you, you nailed it there, this capacity to be able to just love ourselves. Like, I was like, what the fuck is that? I'm, you know, like, get fucking real. Let's move on here. Like I was all about drive, drive, push, 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 push. But then to just look at myself and go, you know what? I try my best as a dad. I, I try my best as a husband. I try my best to be a friend. I try my best to be a human. Um, and, and slowly but surely just unraveling and saying, you know what? I, I'm, I'm actually okay with who I am. And, and yeah, I've fucked up loads of times and I've hurt people and I've caused problems and I've, and I've made mistakes but I'm human. I bleed, and and if it's and if and if I can get to the point of just being okay with myself every day when I wake up and think, oh, here I am again. It's another day to hop in this body and move around and see what happens next. 
then then I'm 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 blessed because you know that could have all gone very differently. Mm. And then the difference between actually looking forward to the next day and just being glad the day that day is over. I've survived another day. The difference between that and I'm going to bed looking forward to tomorrow. You know, there's 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 a whole. Oh, I mean, it's like the dread to, going to bed. Hard to explain, isn't it? And that's what. Um, but you know, until until you experience, it, it's hard to explain. Um, man, like I, I, as I said, I could talk to you. Maybe maybe we'll talk again sometime. Uh, thank you very much. Can I just check with you that you're okay? Because that was some heavy stuff, and I don't like to. I don't want to leave you. <laughs> have you got have you got people to talk to? Have you got people around you? I know you're okay. I know you know your I know you know your stuff. I just want to check with you. You're okay? Because I know. No, honestly, look, I'm 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 really okay. Um, you know, I've spoken about Joshua before on 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 podcasts, and it's to me the you know the memory of of him is so important. You know, of all of the teachers and influencers that I had in my life, he's number one. So to be able to to speak about him, to mention his name, you know, people struggle to to deal with the death of children and often people struggle to talk to people about their child who's died. And a big part of that is just being able to say their name. So it's a, it's a real privilege to be able to share that and talk about him. Um, so um, no, don't worry, I'm, I'm great. I'm, I'm going to have lunch now with the, with the fam um, and uh, I'll be fine. Bit of rugby in the afternoon. Bit of so. rugby. Bit of rugby. Yeah. yeah, great. We're gonna we're gonna beat the French with no with, with no with no good players. Please God, please God. <laughs> Actually, I, I was listening to um, I was listening to your interview with uh, with Donica, and um, I just love that. You know, he's like he's lovely. I didn't like him before I listened to your interview. Yeah, I, I think he. I think people. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, don't I know just, why I can't tell yeah, you why. I just yeah, have yeah. this aversion to him. Yeah, it just happens with people, though, doesn't it? But he's so, he's such an infectious dude. He's, uh, he, you know, as I said, like if I, if I go out and play rugby, standing beside him, like you, you know, you'd rip the head heads off, lads. But uh, but also he like he, like we're in our forties now, trying to figure shit out, you know. And like a lot of the stuff that I like, I was. I feel I was quite damaged by my upbringing. I don't want to like, it's not about blame or pointing the finger. It's just about me figuring that out. Don't get the, at a very young age, looking at his big brothers, not drinking and going, yeah, that's the life for me. You know, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Like when he said that, I thought, wow, like how different would it be if you had that, if you had that influence and, and yeah, like childhood, like, oh, like, of course, when you go into therapy, all of my shit happened way back there. Um, but if you if you have role models, um, it's in, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I was drinking when I was twelve, um, like it's it's just and it was and it was almost like nearly acceptable. Like by the time I was fourteen or fifteen, people were going, ah, yeah, look, yeah, it's not too bad. <laughs> He's only thinking, having a few. <laughs> you were thinking of, you were thinking of giving up. Um, yeah, look, and it's having those positive having positivity around you and you know just just probably wasn't there in the 80s for a lot of us um uh, actually my my brother is in radio my brother um so i i understand your world so well my brother is colin hayes um he okay. used to do the breakfast show on 2fm as well um and like he's had you know, major issues in in, in it. and he's spoken about you know the anxiety and stress as well and um the, the reality of contract to contract and and 
ratings and it's horrible. It was interesting yesterday because yesterday was World Radio Day and a lot of people were on social media talking about World Radio Day and the great times they had and, and, you know, the radio community. And, you know, there's part of me looking at it going, geez, I really want to post something about how fucking, not how terrible, but it's fucking terrible. You know, it is. And I'm not saying that as a kind of a, it's a fucking hard life. It's a hard, yeah. it's a hard business. It, you don't, the problem with it is you don't, no one ever tells you you're doing a good job because they're worried if, if it, your boss never says you're doing a good job because you might want more money. Yeah. Um, and Colin, more than anybody would, you know, he's been through, he's seen it all, do you know what I mean? Uh, and, and, and for me, I mean, he's still, he's still working away for Foxton. You know, for me, with, with 2FM, when that finished, I'm like, geez, I don't know about radio. I don't know if that's if that's the world for me. Um, but but within that, it's figuring out what is, what's the next step and what's the next phase, you know? Yeah, but I also think, look, the biggest challenge in, 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 in media is, you know, the ego and how that's driving you. And, it, and it's like this, you know, relentless mistress that will just, you know, constantly keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And, and even if you, even if you get back into it, getting out of it for a while to take perspective um, and, and, and think about, you know, how, how am I doing here as a, as a dad and, and, you know, to hold, to hold down the show that you held down, for that period of time and and you know we used to listen to you on on in the morning going to going to school and my son was a massive fan and 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 i know what that's like you know to get in there and you've got to be funny and witty and and interesting for for the whole show and that can be whilst the rest of the world is blowing up around you um it is just so abnormal and and then you stop and you're like Fuck, what? <laughs> so I think it's a great time to take perspective. Yeah, and it's it's about how to approach it, maybe if you, how to approach broadcasting diff- from a different place. And that's probably what I'm trying to do with this podcast and uh, and other other things as well. Listen, man, go and have your lunch and uh, enjoy the rugby. And thanks very much for talking to me. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. And thanks, I, I, you know, it's an honor for you to share your your story, especially about your, your son. And um, so I really appreciate that. No, no, thanks, Keith. Look, if, if, it, if, it, if it helps a couple of uh, lads just think a little bit about themselves, then, you know, we're doing something good. So thanks for having me on. Definitely. All right. Good luck. Come on, Ireland. Yeah, please. <laughs> please, God. Yeah. Good luck. See you, Justin. <laughs> we'll talk again. Stay in touch. There you go, Justin Caffrey. Thank you very much for sharing your story, Justin. Um, just to remind you, yeah, his name is Justin Caffrey. He's got a website as well, justincaffrey.com and uh, some interesting stuff on there about Justin Uh, growth is found in discomfort my personal daily practice includes cold water meditating, fasting manifesting, yambushi practice, that must be what he learned in Japan, Buddhism plant based living, mindset stoicism he's a fan of the stoics Uh, a love of fear and mindfulness that's pretty cool Start today with my 21-day meditation and resilience challenge. Learn more. Lots of stuff there on the website and how you can... He can he, he does mindfulness courses. He's a coach. He does all that kind of stuff. And a good guy. And uh, thank you very much for sharing your story with me. 
I uh, yeah, I wasn't sure what to expect. I, I didn't know a lot about Justin, but um, I learned an awful lot about him, and he uh, really kind of had an impact on me. Um, uh, so yeah, it was good. It was a good one, a long one, but it was it was one of those chats that I thought could just go on. Could have just talked to him all day. We had to go and watch the rugby. Anyway, thanks again, Justin. Thanks for talking to me. Uh, if there's anybody that you think I should have on as a guest, any suggestions, anybody you know that is interesting, if you yourself have a good story to tell, um, I'd love to hear from you. You can email the show. It's keithwalchpod at gmail.com. Uh, I'm here 24 hours just staring at my screen, waiting for emails to come in, willing them to come in, manifesting them. It doesn't always work. I don't manifest hard enough. Um, so yeah I'd love to hear from you uh, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast and if you enjoy the podcast do tell your friends, subscribe give us an early review uh, click the 5 stars it's so straightforward, so easy and uh, there is a link as well into this, in the description of the podcast um, if you want to donate a few quid to the podcast to the upkeep of the podcast for you know equipment and stuff like that and uh, thank you very much to Acast this is part of the Acast network that's it for me. I gotta go uh, edit this a little bit, put it up, try and get an early night. I won't get to bed as early as Justin at this stage because past ten o'clock already. Um, but yeah, I'm, it's funny. I'm intrigued, but I spent so long uh, doing breakfast shows and getting up at fucking stupid o'clock that now I'm gone the opposite and uh, I'm still. Sometimes I stay up till midnight. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But I wouldn't mind maybe getting to bed a bit early and maybe getting a bit up a bit earlier. Maybe. Something I could try and do for a couple of weeks. Um, anyway, listen, I got to go. Mind yourselves. Be good to each other. Be happy. Be grateful. Look around you. See what you got. Focus on that. Not what you don't got. And uh, look after your shit before your shit looks after you. No. Take care of your shit before your shit takes care of you. Can't even remember my own quotes. Um, yeah, take it easy. I love you. Yes, yes, you especially. I know it's awkward, but hey, there you go. Bye. <laughs>it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.